We read from Romans chapter 5, and as we come to this great chapter of Scripture this evening, we come to it off the back of the studies that we've been doing these Sunday evenings in the book of Romans that have prepared us for this great uh, transition point. For chapter 5, verse 1 marks one of the great transitional points within the book of Romans, and in particular, a transition in the Apostle Paul's exposition of the Christian good news, the gospel, and his explanation for the heading that we chose for this evening, that is good news of great joy. Why is the gospel source of great joy to the heart of the believer? The gospel, of course, is a subject of the book of Romans, and that's what has been being unpacked for us. And in particular, uh, last Sunday evening, uh, our thoughts were brought to the great statements of Romans 4, in which, using Abraham and David as examples, the apostle has demonstrated that the benefits of the gospel come to us, not because we buy them, purchase them, go into some kind of lend-lease agreement with God for them, but rather we receive them with empty hands, we receive them by faith alone. That was one of the great messages, wasn't it, last Sunday evening. We talked about justification, the the fact that we, we who don't have any righteousness of our own are counted righteous. And Here in this chapter we're going to look at this evening, we're going to find out how the Apostle now spells out the benefits of being justified before God and the blessedness of the justified sinner. We we only do this in the building in the background of what we've already seen, and we constantly will need to remind ourselves of the journey we've taken so far in this book as the Apostle has spelled out the universal need of righteousness. That began in chapter 1, where we heard God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. You may have thought that tough and hard to take, but that's the the need as it's spelled out here. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is the absolute truth that you and I must come to grips with. The most moralistic of us fall into the category of the unrighteous, as well as the the most debauched of us and debased of us. However moralistic, however debauched and debased, we all come under the same sentence. There is none righteous. No, not one. And the only way of righteousness, as we saw last week, is not the way of doing and being. It is the way of believing and receiving. He finished chapter 4 with the great words spoken of Abraham, whose faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let me read those words at the end of chapter 4. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him 
who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, our being pronounced righteous. His righteousness, as well as his death for us, are counted to us as righteous. And now, having made that statement very clear, the apostle turns to express the common experience of righteousness among God's believing people. And you can see there's a, there's a change in the grammar that, that he uses and the language that he uses. The letter began in chapter 1 with Paul speaking of himself and his apostolate. I, he uses the word I, to speak of himself and his apostolate. Then in chapter 2, 3, he he speaks to the moralistic Gentile and the self-righteous Jew. And he exposes their moralism and their self-righteousness. And he refers to them as you. He speaks to them as you. Then as he begins to wind up his argument, he talks about the whole world. The whole world is condemned, guilty before God. He speaks of they, the world, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, whatever they are. He speaks of them who are condemned before the court of heaven. Now he turns to speak about all those who believe, all those to whom the righteousness of Christ has been counted. He speaks of we, us, and our, the once persecutor of the church, now identifies with Christian believers. He identifies with us this evening. Through faith, through believing the gospel, you and I have become part of this new humanity that God is creating. We become those on whom the end of the ages have come. By faith in Christ, We are right with God, and by faith we are what we are not, as someone has put it. By faith we are now what we are not. It declares us to be before God what we are not in ourselves, justified, righteous. I mean... You're not a realistic believer if you don't think for a moment about this language that's used about you, that you are among the righteous. You think of righteous Lot. Well, Lot didn't look very righteous, and we don't look very righteous. And yet that is precisely what God counts us as being. He declares us to be righteous in his eyes. And it's all by free grace. It's all a gift. He declares us to be what we are not in ourselves, that is, in the way we live. We are justified sinners. Simul justus et peccator. At one and the same time, justified and sinful. And he has ended chapter 4 by saying that Jesus was raised for our justification. 
because he died and rose for us. By faith, we are united. We participate in what he did. We are in Christ so that everything he's doing, we're doing in him by participation in his life. We are participating in his death, and we're participating in his resurrection from the dead. We are in Christ. We have life from the dead. We are recreated as new people. We are born from above. By the invisible and ineffable action of God, we are justified in God's presence. He sets us free from condemnation. He fills our empty hands with His precious promises. He takes our side. He acknowledges us as His own. He gives us absolute, complete, and final salvation. And this salvation is delivered to us by the Holy Trinity, by God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's the basis, then, of this great therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And you'll notice that the emphasis of this, these 11 verses, which I calculated I could have preached 20 sermons on, but I, I'm only doing one because I'm only allowed to do one on it. But I, I calcul- the, 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 the thing that stands out, you just read the text for a moment as it was being read to us. I just underlined these things because they, they struck me. They obviously struck me earlier on in the week, but I, I hope they strike you here, that you'll notice the, the language in the, in the ESV of rejoicing. The word uh, that's used there is actually the word to glory in, but it's to glory in with exultation, so rejoicing is a good word. It's to glory in in the sense of boasting about something. Boasting. That's usually a bad thing to do, but you can boast in good things, especially if they're not things that are generated by you. You can boast about them if you've been given them freely. Uh, If somebody gave you a brand new BMW or something, you would boast about it. You weren't able to afford to buy it, but you were given to it as a gift. Uh, So the word glory is a good one. I'm going to stick with the word glory tonight because it comprehends all the other things. And I I want you to notice how it emerges in verse 2, that we glory in hope of the glory of God. Or in verse 3, we glory in our sufferings. And then in verse 11, we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we glory in hope. We glory in hope of the glory of God. This is the great end of the salvation that we've been given. There are several factors that feed our joy in our great hope that exceeds any other hope. Look how he builds the case and leads us to that point. He says, first of all, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was this great declaration of divine comfort to Jerusalem that Isaiah reported God as saying, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak 
tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she will receive double grace for all of her transgressions and sins. It's a great message of the gospel. It's a message that lies at the heart of what is going on here. The warfare is gone. Hostilities have ceased. There is friendly relationships. There is friendship. There is peace. Peace with God. Not not only am I not bucking against him, pushing him away from me, and struggling to keep him out of my life, but God is no longer against me. Peace with God. And all this through him, through him, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through him, Thomas Aquinas says, through him as through a mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Through him, we have access by one spirit to the Father, Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians. Through him, we have obtained access. That is, we've obtained an introduction. It's like there's somebody very important can get you a job somewhere, and somebody makes an introduction of you. They introduce you to him so that you can go and have a meal with them and get to know them and be able to sell yourself and get a job as a result. We have an introduction into the presence of God and into the state of grace in the presence of God. This is not where either you or I or Paul stand by nature. By nature, we're at a distance. We're barred. No entry into the presence of God. But here we are given an introduction to appear before God. Not as we are, but as He has declared us to be. And thereby, because He has declared it to be, we come into His presence, and instead of being destroyed by being in His presence, we stand. Once we would not have stood. But now our position, you see, is secure. It's stable. Our relationship with God is no longer precarious. We can't fall in and out of grace. We stand in a state of grace in the presence of God. And it's with that in mind, with that peace with God, with that access to God, that we rejoice, we glory, we boast in hope of the glory of God. We have this certain hope that one day we will share in the glory the glory of God. God is glorious. Glory stands for all the perfections of God's being and eternity and life. We are are going to share in the glory of God, in the nature, the divine nature. 
There's this exultant jubilation in the hope beyond all other hopes. Calvin puts it like this. In the gospel, there shines forth upon us the hope that we may ourselves share in the divine nature. For when we shall see God face to face, we shall be like him. Christian hope of the glory of God is the illumination of a man and woman's whole being by the radiance of divine glory. We we were looking at this when we were studying the transfiguration of Christ. There, when we look at Christ transfigured and we see his human nature transfigured by the glory of God, the glory that comes from within him transfigures his human nature. We will share in that transfiguration, only it's the glory that comes from him that will transfigure us and make us glorious like him. This illumination of a person's whole being by the radiance of divine glory, which is our true destiny. It was lost through sin. It has been restored, not as it was, but immeasurably, immeasurably enriched through God's own personal participation in our humanity in Jesus Christ. And that will take place at the parousia. It will take place and it will bring to us pure sight. The pure in heart shall see God. So if we reject this hope, sorry, if we rejoice in this hope, as Calvin writes, Although we may be pilgrims on earth, yet we confidently hasten towards that place which is beyond all the heavens, cherishing this future heritage joyfully in our hearts. We rejoice in hope. We boast about it. We rest on God's free grace. We glory in hope. And secondly, we glory in sufferings. We rejoice, we glory in our sufferings. Christians make high and holy claims for themselves when we talk about our hope of the glory of God. But that confidence and those claims are apparently contradicted by the afflictions that come in our lives. I mean, we affirm that the glory awaits us with our hearts and with our lips. We sing about it. We speak about it. But what people see when they look at us is what? They see people just like themselves. To put it in the language of the Apostle John, what we shall be is not apparent now when people look at us. We are heir to all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, all the things that flesh is heir to. We are heir to those things, this side of the sun. The believer knows both in our outer life and in our inner life, innumerable afflictions. There are, in our Christian experience, many trials and temptations that are particular to to us as Christians. Are these trials evidence that our faith is is in vain? Do these trials and temptations invalidate our salvation? It was Jesus who said, I have said this to you that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And the Apostle Paul gathered his new converts around him, and he reminded them, and he reminds us through them, that it is through much tribulation that we must enter into the kingdom of God. Persecutions, tribulations, afflictions, sufferings do not interfere with your final salvation. Now, there's a great contrast here, isn't there, to the cults and to much of the contemporary scene. The health and wealth teachers we see on television, the prosperity gospelers, they invariably promise too much. They as good as say, follow me, follow my teaching, and your troubles will be over. Politicians sometimes use their playbook, and they promise us the world. And then they get into power, and they realize that they can't deliver on their promises. They promise too much. But Christianity doesn't promise too much. There is a kind of faith that evaporates. Jesus said, whenever whenever trouble and persecution arises because of the word. But the Holy Spirit is far more realistic and honest. Paul can say that he doesn't lose heart, even as he sees, as we all must, that our outer nature, this physical body that we're living in, is wasting away, that our bodily dissolution is already begun. It began when you were born. You started to lose cells, and you've been losing them and losing them and losing them your whole life. Dissolution is already begun. We can say with the Apostle Paul that the energy of death is at work in us, as it is in everyone. And such conflicts are both physical and psychological. Paul talks about them. He he talks about fighting without and fears within. That's the Christian life. It's, It's real life. In the peace of God, there is sighing and murmuring and weakness. As Luther puts it, these words turn and rend those babblers who desire all Christians to be strong and none of them weak. But Christians are full of longing. They cry in their misery, Abba, Father. In, in other words, we are we're just weak believers. We believe, but we are creatures under the sun. There's no avoiding harm or hurt for those who hope for but do not yet possess the final salvation. So we glory in our sufferings and afflictions because something is going on even in them. Suffering produces endurance. There's nothing automatic about this. There's a process in view. As illness, afflictions, persecution arise, we find ourselves casting ourselves over and over again on the Lord. There's nothing like being sick, ill, to suddenly make you pray. And we cast ourselves on the Lord. We turn to Him. 
we cast ourselves on him, and he gives us the grace to carry on. Even as we feel the power of the enemy, and death, by the way, is the final enemy that we will face, so we discover the strength of the Lord. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces experience, sometimes translated character or proof or approvedness. It's the quality of a person that has been tested and passed the test. And experience produces hope. As we find ourselves stronger than we thought in the midst of the trial, so we learn that God's grace is sufficient for our need. And as we learn that, we grow in our confidence that the God who's at work in the present can be relied on to keep his promises in the future. And so hope is born, and hope grows. And the apostle goes on to say, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. God is active now in your heart and life as a believer. He reminds you of the love of God in sending Christ to die for you. He reminds you of the love of God that chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He reminds you of the love of God that has guarded and guided you. He reminds you of the love of God that longs to enfold you into that love eternally when you are brought into his presence. As Jesus prayed, I pray that they would know the love that you have had for me and I for you from all eternity. We're going to share in that. The Holy Spirit brings that to us. God's love for us, and here's the key. The Holy Spirit comes to reassure us of God's love for us, not of our love for God. It's a shaky thing, our love for God. But God's love for us is not shaky. God's love for us is eternal, and it's uh, secure. The Holy Spirit is the premier gift of God for his people, given when we believe and are justified, and by him God's love is poured out in our hearts to make us deeply, refreshingly know that God loves us and that we are his children by adoption. We glory in sufferings. Because God is doing a work in us through them. And then lastly, we glory in God. We glory in God. That's the very punchline of this little section here. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we arrive there? How do we arrive at the point where God is the occasion of our joy in exaltation and boasting and glory He begins by spelling it out from verse 6. While we were yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is, at the time of God's appointment, in the fullness of time that God had predestined before the foundation of the world, the time that God had chosen in his sovereign freedom, the time when Christ accomplished his work for us. And consider whom Christ died for. 
For those who believe and are now justified, yes. But what were they when he died for them? They were helpless. They were ungodly. They were sinners. They were enemies. We could not help ourselves. We did not love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. We'd sinned against God's law. We were hostile to God. Yet what do we find? We find that when we had no thought of God, He thought of us. Now, though we could not help ourselves, He acted in Christ on our behalf. That though we deserved His righteous wrath, He chose to demonstrate His love. And He did this. While we were still in a state of alienation, He did this so that we might be reconciled to Him. God acted as God when our Lord came into the world. Jesus Christ is our Lord. That's a divine word. Yahweh, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God with us, for us. He died. Nothing else about Jesus, his teaching, his actions, his influence, makes any sense apart from his death. Christ died for us. All those negative categories are listed by the apostle, and they refer to us, helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies. And how does God demonstrate his love for us? Christ died for us. Death is the penalty, the wage of sin. As a sinless person, Jesus did not deserve to die, but he assumed our human nature. God sent his son to us, Romans will later say, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He could die, but he would not die because of sin. His humanity was real and sinless. Yet though the sins were ours, the death was his. This means he died as a sin offering, taking our place, bearing in our place the penalty our sins deserved. And there's this enormous mystery to this. The apostle wonders at it. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But that's not what's happening here. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are stories of heroism and self-sacrifice throughout history. But those, those stories are only parables of this divine action by which you and I are brought into this new life. Because though I might be able to save somebody from some danger and might even be able to save somebody from death, I cannot save another person from final judgment. I cannot give them that security that stretches beyond the realm of our earthly lives and of, eter- of time and eternity. Therefore, says the apostle, how much more, more than this, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. He says, having been justified, having now been justified, made righteous, counted righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what we have this evening. We 
God provided that. God did that. God demonstrated this to us. God sent his son. It's the blood of God that was shed on the cross because Jesus is the God-man. And the effect of it is salvation. Not only salvation, but another word that he introduces here that, that we need to see. Not only saved, but reconciled to God. Alienation has gone. Reconciliation presupposes alienation. The alienation is gone. We're reconciled to God. In other words, what Jesus has done for us in verse 9 is judicial. He's met the demands of the law on our behalf, both by his obedient life and by his sacrificial death. But in verse 10, what he's done is also personal. Our offense was against a person, the person of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But now we're reconciled. And these two great gifts, the judicial and the personal, are now ours. No wonder he says we boast, rejoice in God. God is no longer the God of wrath to us. He's our friend. He's our Father in Christ. We're reconciled to him. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We've got the hope of the glory of God. Even our present sufferings can be turned by God to good for our character and our own personal growth and experience. And so we boast in God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this evening as we contemplate the wonder and the amazing grace that you've shown us in Christ, that we just revel in it, Lord, that we'd enjoy it together. Enjoy to think about and to delight in the love the Father has for us from all eternity. Good news of great joy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.